welcome to another production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Today your host is Dr. Jan Vidal. She is an educator, author, curriculum designer, and a specialist in neural development. Dr. Jan has spent 20 years encouraging, educating, and inspiring families through her company, Little Giant Steps. So, whether you have a typical, gifted, or struggling learner, these weekly Brain Coach tips will help you discover foundational keys to make learning and life easier through the neurodevelopmental approach. And now, welcome your host for today. Hello everyone, it's Jan Bedell, the Little Giant Steps Brain Coach. Welcome back for this week's Brain Coach Tip. It has been such a rewarding experience to have seen thousands of families incorporate the neurodevelopmental approach, resulting in lives being changed and potential being unlocked. This approach has been used for typically developing individuals from birth to late adulthood and has also been successful in accelerating the functional abilities of those that struggle with learning, those with learning challenges and syndromes. These advances were made possible through the products and programs from Little Giant Steps. I've been privileged to speak to many parents in homeschool book fairs across the U.S. These parents often come back the next year to report remarkable progress for their struggling learner or tremendous advancements for their typical or gifted children. I believe if more families knew the information that I'm about to share with you about the early years of development, we would have far fewer learning disabilities and far fewer learning difficulties. Today, you will be joining me on the road at a homeschool conference where I answer the question for attendees. When does homeschooling really begin? Be sure to get the handout at braincoachtips.com. Look for number 29, so you can reference all the same information that these attendees had in their hand at the time of this recording. All right, so we're gonna be talking about when does homeschooling really begin? And I'm so glad to be able to share with young mothers uh, what I know because I tend as a vocation I work with children with learning challenges and so I see that if parents knew what to do with their children when they were younger and make sure they go through developmental steps that they wouldn't have the challenges that they have now so I'm really uh, excited about being able to have this talk and share with you the things that the Lord has uh, gifted me with over the years so that I can help children with learning challenges, but also those that are just starting out. My name is Jan Bedell, and I'm what's called a neurodevelopmentalist. And that's someone that looks at the brain, neuro, and then how does it develop and what steps need to happen. Now, when I was uh, just out of high school, I just wanted to be a wife and mother. I never dreamed of the wonderful thing that comes after that, and that is grandchildren. So this is my first grandbaby. Uh, her name is Kenzie. She's five now. And she is what I call, she, when I made an experience book for her when she was little, I called her my sunshine. 
we're a homeschooling family, and this is Kinsey when she was at the first Arlington Book Fair. She was not her book fair. The first one was nine months old, and now she is a big sister. This is uh, Kinsey with Carter, and then we've just had Kaylee join the family. And I'm in kind of a unique situation because we're a multi generational household. So I get to be around these little guys at home from, I work from home, and so I get to go out and have lunch with them and read them a book, you know, and instead of just uh, visiting here and there. So I am very privileged and been able to watch this neurodevelopment happen all through their little young lives. So one of the things that I want to tell you is that most people don't think about starting their education of their children until they're four or five typically. But as the title may give away, homeschooling really begins at birth. And some people even before birth, they're stimulating the auditory nerve uh, in utero oftentimes. But it's important, these early years are really important because at birth you have 30% of your adult weight of your brain but by two, it's increased to 70% of that adult weight for your brain. So there's just massive things happening in the first couple of years. Our whole philosophy is input, input, input. So inputting information will equal easy output. And our society tends to be more on output. You know, they'll hold up this and say, okay, now what's this? What's this? And we're more about saying t and z and and or just saying o and s and d and giving them that that information all right so this little bit of science not too much but if you look at that first square there with the it's actually a brain cell your brain cell is kind of like your fist or your hand and then what sticks out that's like your fingers those are called dendrites, and that's what grows in your brain. And then the axon is what connects to the dendrites to make a pathway in the brain. So if you took that first brain cell and took it out and looked it under a microscope and then did some input for your child and put it, you know, you were able to put it back in and look at it again, it might look like that second one. You can see there's lots of things happening there. And what this does is help the brain with efficiency. It can pick the best pathway to go to do motor function or to think or whatever needs to happen. The brain is made up of these pathways. They're kind of like roadways in your brain. And if you think about it, it's pretty amazing because you, you can think and your brain makes your little finger move. We are definitely fearfully, wonderfully made. This whole process of building dendrites can be either stopped with trauma or it can be slowed down or it can be accelerated. So I'm not one of these that's, you know, spend lots of time with your preschoolers doing um, academic things or anything, but I found that when you stimulate the brain, it just makes your job a whole lot easier later on. I want to let you know about this test kit. At the top of every hour, we give away free test kits and teach you about auditory processing. So I want to make sure you can come by the booth to take advantage of that. Or if you're listening to this on the recording, we do have those free test kits online as well. So if you look at this, you'll see 
what happens so massively and so quickly when this is a visual cortex of an infant at three months and then at 16 months and at 24 months, all the connections that are there. It's amazing. We have 3% cell bodies. 97% of our brain is a connection. So when you stimulate the brain, it forms the connection, then you get the function. We usually have that kind of backwards. Now, I said something about our cultural practices. You know, what we do with our infants is oftentimes not helping their <laughs> development at all. One of the practices you see is carrying them around in an infancy. So instead of carrying them in, their, in your arms, they get a lot more information when you're carrying them. They feel warmth, they feel pressure, all those kind of things. When they're sitting in the infant seat, they don't get much. Now, one of our cultural practices is, well, when they're first born, they're just one step above a coma. They don't feel much, they don't see much, they don't hear much, they don't taste much. You know, all the senses are dulled. So what we do is take them and we put them in the farthest part of the house and we stick them down in this hole known as a crib, and we paint their rooms pastel, which all they can see is black and white, and, uh, where they, and so we put them back there where they can't hear much, see much, or anything like that. So I'm encouraging you to do the opposite and reward yourself with every hour you spend specifically working with your preschooler. You'll save five hours of working with them later on. You will get enormous returns by just doing some things along the way and a lot of them can be done at the changing table. So touch is very important. They did an experiment one time. A, a king wanted to know if these babies weren't spoken to what language they would speak. And so they put them all in this area and they were only allowed to change their diaper and feed them. But they all died because touch is so very important. And um, so that experiment was cut short and hopefully never happened again. But touch is very, very important. You know, a lot of times people are just bottle feeding. And if you have to bottle feed, that's fine. Uh, I encourage you to, to breastfeed. And here's one of the reasons. If we're bottle feeding, we're pretty much putting them in the same way all the time. We stick the bottle in, hold them with their one hand because we're right-handed or left-handed. And we're holding the bottle. If you're breastfeeding... You have to move from side to side by just necessity. But if you're bottle feeding, one eye is blocked, one ear is blocked, one hand's blocked, one foot's blocked, and so they don't get the same stimulation. But so if you're bottle feeding, go back and forth and prop the bottle only while you're holding them, not in the bed, so that you can use your hand to stimulate their body. So if you're mashing on their toes, if you're mashing on their legs, if you're um, touching their face, the trigeminal nerve is one of the largest nerves in the body. It controls the eyes, the nose, the lips, the mouth, all this area. So it helps their articulation, their hearing, and all of this kind of thing. I work with a lot of kids with challenges, you know, and they come in and this nerve is so underdeveloped that they can't even wink their eye. So I was really surprised when Kinsey could do this at three and a half she could just wink one eye and then the other. <laughs> so I thought it was pretty good. So when you're breastfeeding or you just you know, put them in the infant seat or whatever, you just um, tickle their face, tickle their head, and that stimulates the nerves. Again, building those dendrites, that's why I showed you that first, because every time you stimulate them, something's happening in the brain. 
Now one thing that we did a lot, and especially at the changing table, but when we were just playing with the kids, this is Kenzie when she was about three months old, and you see her fingers are wrapped around my thumbs. And I would pull her up just gently, and then she would use some head control then. But you see, I'm not holding on to her fingers. She's actually pulling. So my grandson, every time he, he knows when he wants to get up, he just puts his hands up like that and grabs hold of our thumbs because he has to walk up us to help with that muscle. Because you have to have these flexors and extensors to be able to write. And I was amazed at what happened. Along with this, just picking them up with their hands wrapped around our thumbs, we did what's called deep pressure. We pressed on their fingers, pressed on their arms, and you can press pretty hard because they don't feel pain, but every time you press, it sends a signal. Oh, this is my arm, this is my finger, this is my toe, this is my leg. You know, the, this little piggy that we used to do, they used to do all the time, that was really to give input. And I don't know if they realized that they were doing it, but it does do that. So fingertips to shoulders, toes to hips, you just mash on them. Kaylee now, you know, we just pick her up and we're just squeezing on her. The textures are something I forgot to bring because we're using them for Kaylee. <laughs> but um, I took fabric, different kinds of fabric, silky fabric, burlap, corduroy, all kinds of different fabric. And when we're at the changing table, we just do a little rubbing of her arms and legs. Actually, summer babies develop better than winter babies because they have more skin exposed. It's very interesting. So if you just give that, that little light touch, it takes, you know, 15, 20 seconds for a, for a little baby on each limb. And you're really, again, sending those messages so they don't have trouble with their socks later on and, you know, clothes bothering them and all that kind of stuff because they're getting the appropriate sensory. Now, odors... They don't smell much, so what you can do is get, we got these little pill containers that stack, and we put a little piece of cotton in there, and some essential oils or some smell from the extracts from the kitchen or something like that, and you just open it, run it under their nose so they can smell it, and put it back. Just two or three smells every time you're there, and you can identify it or not, depending on the age of the child. And that starts helping their olfactory connect. And that has a lot to do with whether they're picky eaters or not, because odor has a lot to do with your eating. Now, you want to have bright colors. Children can basically see black and white. So the, painting them the dark blue and not the child, but the room. <laughs> Um, is going to help them be able to see better. And then don't be afraid to have sounds around them. You want to have different sounds like the dishwasher running and the blender going and different things like that so that they get used to it. And before they're two, they're pretty much li linguistic geniuses. You know, they've learned a whole language. So it's good to expose them to other languages when they're little. Now, the way you do this is just play some recordings so that they hear it. And again, those dendrites are being formed. We're not talking about teaching them necessarily a language when they're little, but hearing it. Because when those connections are formed, then later on when you want to teach them the language, they hear it. They hear the distinctions because the brain is pretty brutal. If you don't use it, 
you lose it. It's, it's gone. So that's why a lot of people that are Oriental, if they've been raised in the Orient and they come here, and you say, okay, you say, read. And they said, yes, weed. No, no, it's read. And, and they say, oh, yes, yes, weed. They don't hear the distinction of that because that's not in their language. And that's one reason just to expose them with that. Now, we're the only creature on earth that really has this pad-to-pad exclusively as well as we do. And I believe it's for a very particular purpose, and that is writing and writing correctly, holding their pencil correctly. Usually, they start out with this prehensile grasp. You know, they hold the pencil like this or like this. I did not know this was going to happen, but this happened with both of my grandchildren because, and I believe it's the deep pressure and pulling them up so that their muscles are working right. They both picked up their pencil. This was Kinsey at 19 months. I don't encourage writing young because it influences their hand, but um, mom didn't get the note on that, and so she bought her this uh, doodle thing with mag- um, magnets. And you see how she's holding her pencil. I mean, almost a perfect grasp, and nobody showed her that. So what I'm seeing is all this kind of stuff because you don't have those grasps like you're supposed to. Now, uh, Carter had something pretty unusual happen. I thought, especially for 13 months, mom had this this, uh, white dog that was always in the way. So she was snapping her fingers, get the dog out of the way, get the dog out of the way. And so she was always snapping her fingers. And here's Carter at 13 months. I could not believe it. He was actually snapping his fingers. And you could hear sound from that. He was pretty proud of himself. (laughs) One thing I want to make sure you know about is not influencing the hand. The hand is genetic. And so if you have left-handed people in your family or what I call closet lefties, you know, like my dad, they slapped his hand and made him sit on it. So he appeared to be right, but he was really a left-handed person. You don't want to influence their hands. So when they're little, put everything at the midline. Their bowl, their spoon, their cup that they would pick up and drink and just let them pick which one. The uh, toys that they play with, try to make it right in the midline so that they can pick it with either hand. And then between four and eight, they should be making sure that they have picked their dominant hand. But again, you don't want to influence that. You want them to just be able to, that to come out in the genetics through the development, the right development. On littlegiantsteps.com, we have a number of podcasts and webinars that you can listen to. So just click on that. Um, It's on the home page, and you'll have a number of different choices of how to look at these different areas. Now, one thing that you can do once they're a little bit older and you see there might be an issue, you want to develop those muscles that make them be able to right correctly. So we take these little squirt fish and we put them in the bathtub and they have to sit on the second finger and you have them fill it with water and then squirt, 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 squirt. Right? So every time they're doing this, they're 
exercising that cortical opposition. If they're a little bit older, we like these putty eyes. So again, they sit on this second finger, and so just the index finger and thumb are putting that pressure. And they're, every time they do that, they just like to do it. So they're putting pressure and having an isometric exercise there for that. Now, for the boys especially, they, they love these poppers. So you put your thumbs on the back, push them open, and then they hold them with just the index finger and thumb, and that really puts some pressure. They have to really work on that. And then, of course, it's going to pop, and they love that. The other thing that we do is these little hyperflex balls. We turn them inside out, put their whole hand in this ball, and then just they open it against that pressure. Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> that was a little delayed response. <laughs> but that is going to work on those extensor muscles. You know, some people say, oh, well, I have them squeeze balls and stuff like that. And that's great for the flexors, but you've got to have something that builds these muscles too. So this is a really good, good thing to use for that. Here's some more putty eyes and the hyperflex ball. It looks, looks like that um, rolled up. And then if they're a little bit... Um, weak in the hands, you can use for like five and under. These twist and rights, that's the one that looks like a Y and their finger goes in there just to support. It helps them hold it the right way. If they're a little older, I like the claw because they're actually holding on the pencil, but it makes them be on a, in a tripod grip, but it gives them a little flexibility. Some people encourage cursive early, so I just included this here. I, I really like the cursive logic because they teach the four strokes, teach the whole alphabet. So they take all the letters that are taught with the same stroke and they teach them that together. So if you have somebody that wants to learn cursive, it's especially important for boys. Um, they've found neurological connections with that, so a resource for you. Now, how is the brain organized? This is really where it starts when they're on their stomach. And why on their stomach instead of on their back? Well, when you're on your back and you're flailing your arms and legs, all you get is air. But when you're on your stomach and you're moving your arms and legs, you get input to your, your limbs. Now, this is another cultural thing. You know, our pediatricians are saying, don't put your children on their stomach to sleep. All my grandchildren have slept on their stomach. All my children have slept on their stomach. I, think, I really think it's from something else. There's a number of factors that came in at the same time. So I just encourage you to have them on their stomach as much as, as you possibly can. And when they sleep on their stomach, they're more comfortable and they don't mind it so much. But we've got so many gadgets that we put our kids in. We keep them off the floor and then we delay or um, they just skip over developmental steps that they're supposed to go through. Let me just go through those right quick. The first thing that you do in development is you move and get that um, tactile information to your brain about this is my leg. You know, K Kaylee would just flap her, flap her feet against the ground, flap her feet. And every time she banged it, it sent a message to the brain. You know, our culture, especially up north, we, we put them in all these clothes and put something over their hands and, and stick them in a sack and put them in a chair. Well, they can't feel anything that way. So, again, the, the babies in the, born more in the summer have more skin exposed because it's hotter and they just get more input there. 
Now, if your child does not like tummy time much, you have to train them to like it. So you just roll them over, entertain them a little bit, roll them back over, and then at longer and longer times. This is Kenzie helping Kaylee with her tummy time. She just started entertaining her because she was kind of fussy. There's a primitive reflex on the bottom of your foot called the Babinski reflex, and I'm pretty convinced that it is integrated at this point when they're tiny. This is Kinsey when she was seven days old, and you see this is just a crawling reflex. You see how she's turning her foot under and pushing? That's actually a reflex that, that happens when they're born, but it, it helps with that Babinski reflex. That's not integrated. They kind of go on the sides of their foot and causes balance issues. And then the brain has to say, send up some cortisol. I've got to have some help here, you know. I'm, I'm off balance. And then that is going to cause some other issues like actually cortisol dissolves a lot of the network, the dendrites that, that are there. So it's not good to have a, a lot of cortisol. The next thing, after they start moving and getting information to their brain, they start moving in what's called a homologous movement, both arms together or both legs at the same time. And this is just a developmental step that's kind of still in the brainstem area, the medulla area of the brain. And then the next thing that happens is they are supposed to do army crawl. So if they're on their stomach enough, then they start to organize their brain with this army crawl. Now here's why this is important. One side of your body is controlled by uh, the opposite hemisphere of the brain and this side by the opposite. So when you're moving the right arm and the left leg at the same time, you are actually using both hemispheres at the same time and building what's called the bridge, the corpus callosum, that helps the two hemispheres communicate with each other. So this is the foundation for organized thought, movement, all of that kind of thing. So army crawl, think army crawl, that's on their stomach. They're, they're, the baby's on their stomach. And then the next area works on the midbrain. The midbrain is where they're up on their hands and knees, creeping. I showed this picture because when you look at this, sometimes it's confusing for people because if you look, the, right, the, the child's left hand is in front and the knee is coming up. So they are actually working with the opposite knees, but it's coming close on the same side. So as you watch the child go, these are working, but these are coming close. You see what I mean? So you don't want to confuse that. This is where they would be same side. So if these two are going out at the same time, that's that same side. You want them to be doing cross pattern. And if they don't do that well, or they didn't do that when they were little, you want to play games like that. Let's, let's be a horse, or let's be a puppy, or whatever, and crawl around the house a lot. At least twice a day for a couple of minutes. Now, some children crawl like this with one knee up, and I believe it has to do with the tactile. They don't like the feel of that, so they just hold that knee up. And it's not a good cross pattern. My son-in-law scooted. They called him Scooter. He just scooted on his bottom. He missed that whole thing. And you should see his desk. I mean, things are everywhere. <laughs> he, is very, he has a disorganized brain. Some do this bear crawl. Again, that's not what you're looking for um, either. And then 
one thing I want to encourage you is lots of textures. Tile, carpet, let them crawl on and creep all over. This one's in sand. She's not quite sure about it. <laughs> but as you give that stimulation, they like it and they get uh, exposed to it. Now, this is uh, Kenzie creeping when she was nine months old. But I want you to watch what happens with her eyes. She's looking to the side. She's looking up and down. She's coming to a target here. And then at this angle, you're going to be able to see how she's very synchronized crawling cross pattern. One thing I want you to look at right before she gets to the target is something I couldn't have staged if I had tried, but I was so thrilled to get this. There's a piece of fuzz right there that she's picking up. So that's cortical opposition, and also her eyes are working together. You know, when they're in this position, if you're in infant seat, everything's too far away. But when you're up on your hands and knees, things start to come into focus and you start using both eyes to put the image on top of the other or converging your eyes. This is where your central vision uh, starts working, where you see right in the center. I see a lot of kids that are struggling with coloring in the lines and writing on the lines and things like that because that never got developed. Now, contrary to popular understanding of some people, sitting is not a developmental stage. Look at these, these kiddos. They're all bent over. Their backs are bowed because you should not be teaching your child to sit. Sitting is not a developmental stage. They get into the sit when they're, they're creeping and they are, have those muscles developed from being on their stomach, raising their head, raising their chest, getting all those muscles developed. Now, <laughs> Kaylee, she's five months old. And, well, she just turned six months. But, you know, for a long time, she's got her hand out here. She couldn't quite figure out how to sit up. Do you see all the balance that's going on here? She is getting in the sit by herself. So now she got there, and she's pretty happy with herself because she can reach things that she wants to, wants to get. But that's when they get into a sit, when they can get it in there on their own. I hope you have not only enjoyed, but will take to heart what I have shared so far on the important topic of when homeschooling really begins. There was only time in this podcast format to share part of this strategic workshop, so stay tuned to the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network for part two of When Does Homeschooling Really Begin? Don't forget the handout located at braincoachtips.com where you will see the full archive of neurodevelopmental tips. Until next week, it's the Brain Coach signing off and reminding you that neurodevelopment is a dynamic approach to life at any age. So think differently. The solution is not in the problem. Thank you for your time and attention. We hope and pray You'll return next week for another session with Dr. Jan Bedell, the Brain Coach. The ND Approach for Life is a proven program to increase learning performance naturally. Little Giant Steps is there for you. If you have questions for the Brain Coach to incorporate skills and techniques taught in our podcast, please email cj at littlegiantsteps.com. That's C as in cat, J as in joy, at 
littlegiantsteps, all one word, dot com. So until next time, may the good Lord bless and keep you. Thank you.